to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance your mental and physical health, and encourage community. Typically, we start out our program with news and notes in psychology and medicine, and then I go on to our guest and the interview for the day. Today, we're going to reverse that order. We're going to go right to our interview, and then we'll have news and notes at the end of the program. Our guest today is Dr. Jay Cohn. He's a nationally esteemed medical practitioner and researcher and a leading expert on prescription medications and natural supplements. However, he, today we're going to be talking about his latest book, Prostate Cancer Breakthroughs, New Tests, New Treatments, Better Options. This book is the only book that takes readers step-by-step step through the evaluation process, informing men of vital new tests, not just men, but men and their families, actually, new tests and treatment options that can help tens of thousands of men, maybe more, avoid unneeded surgery or radiation. By the way, Dr. Cohn is the author of eight health books and more than 100 medical articles. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dr. Cohn. Thank you very much, Dr. Miller. You were diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2011 and directed towards surgery or radiation, which if I understand correctly, but correct me if I'm mistaken, you were about to go ahead with. But then, after learning about leading-edge tests that your doctors did not tell you about, and after you conducted dozens of interviews with top doctors, you actually avoided this invasive treatment and your prostate cancer, cancer remains under control without medication. Is that accurate? Uh, yes, it's exactly accurate. I was diagnosed in December 2011. I um, had a PSA test that was markedly elevated, and we repeated it, which is what should always be done, but often is not. Uh, and it still was high to make sure it was accurate. And then I had a biopsy. And by the way, as I explain these things, I will then later explain how I would not do any of this the way it was originally done. The things that have changed so much during this year and a half uh, that I've been uh, looking at all this. So I did get a biopsy. The bi biopsy did show uh, cancer, a low-grade cancer. And I was, you know, told by three different surgeons uh, that I should have surgery, and I was on the schedule. And then I, you know, fate, uh, luck came my way, and I went to a, a men's group. Uh, but these weren't just any men. These were men who are part of an independent support group here in San Diego. And they're all, I mean, many are retired, but they all had, you know, high-level jobs, very bright guys. And they were involved in uh, keeping up with all the changes that were happening. And they said to me, well, um, this cancer they're going to remove, how big is it? Where is it? And I said, well, we know it's on the left side, but we don't know how big it is. We don't know if it's all over the place or just one spot. We don't know actually if it's even spread. And they said, well, uh, there's ways to learn these things now. Now, up until now, there has been no way to really accurately identify what's going on in a man's prostate gland. Uh, the, this gland, which is the size of a, you know, a, maybe a small peach, large plum down in deep in the pelvis 
it's been on it's impossible to do tests that you would normally do for almost anything else uh when it came to diagnostics uh such as an MRI but with the prostate being so deep it had been impossible to separate prostate cancer cells from normal prostate cells so you didn't really have a way of identifying what you were dealing with so for the last 25 years uh doctors mainly urologists who are surgeons would uh, say, well, if you have it here, you have it all over the prostate. That's what our, you know, uh, pathological examinations show. And if you have, if your PSA is this high and you find cancer in several of the biopsy pieces you take, you have to have surgery or radiation. Please, please now, let me interrupt you one second. Uh, t- tell our listeners what a PSA is. Oh, well, this is a very hot topic, a very important topic. PSA test stands for prostate-specific antigen test. The prostate gland secretes this protein normally, and consequently, a normal test will reveal a result of one up to or up to four nanograms per milliliter. But lately, this has been in the news a lot because uh, about a year ago, a federal panel came out and said, we should stop doing this PSA testing because it's misleading doctors. Uh, now, the PSA test will jump higher because prostate cancer cells secrete more of this PSA. So if a man's PSA test suddenly starts climbing and goes above four or even higher, uh, it's a warning light. But the problem is it's a general warning light. It's not specific to prostate cancer. As men get older, some of their prostates get bigger. This is called benign prostatic hypertrophy. And that alone can cause greater release of PSA. Or if men have had prostate infections, uh, that can cause elevation of PSA. And there's other factors. Often doctors will see this high PSA and assume it's cancer. They'll do a biopsy, and a biopsy is done in a doctor's office, but it still is a, a surgical procedure. It's minor, but it's not pleasant. And it can have you know, adverse effects like bleeding or even infection. I have a friend who had a blood infection, ended up in the hospital for about a week and a half trying to kill the blood infection. So the problem is misreading of the PSA, rushing men to biopsies, and then from there, if their biopsy is positive, they are then rushed over to surgery or radiation. And these are not benign procedures. You know, prostate surgery is a major surgery. And in doing the surgery or in doing the radiation, Often the the men's nerves that go to these areas are impacted or injured, and men then have uh, briefer, prolonged, or permanent problems with bladder control or sexual functioning. So there's a real downside to these uh, methods that you really want to avoid if you want to, but the statistics up until about 2011, as far as we have them, show that of the 200,000 men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer every year, 85% following this model, that's been uh, our method, following this model, 85% get prostate surgery or they get radiation, and yet now we're finding that only 15% really need it. So there's a tremendous amount of over-treatment. Uh, unnecessary surgery, unnecessary radiation. So what you're saying, ramifications. So what you're saying is, uh, people they get the PSA. If the PSA is elevated, 
a, a significant number of them then go directly to biopsy, and that's what's contributing to 1.2 million biopsies a year in the United States. But you're saying that 85% of those 1.2 million biopsies needn't to have, have taken place. Is that correct? 85% of the biopsies that show cancer. Not all biopsies show cancer. Mm -hmm. In fact, biopsies often miss cancer, and then they keep doing more biopsies and more biopsies. And, but of the ones who ultimately get diagnosed with prostate cancer, 85% end up in radiation or surgery, and yet only 15% really need it. Now, that's 70,000, 80,000, 90,000 men a year. So what you're recommending, if I understand it from your book, is that after you get a PSA, and if it's elevated, you have other diagnostic procedures which you're recommending. Let's start talking about them. From the PSA, I think the next thing you recommend is a DRE, the digital rectal exam, and ultrasound. Well, everybody does that. Okay. That, that's standard care, and that's part of, it's part of the yearly evaluation men should get, and it's also part of... Uh, evaluation of men who might have a problem. But that, but ultrasound is not standard, or is it? Well, let, let me place it in a sequence Okay. as it unfolded. Um, ultrasound is, uh, a regular ultrasound is usually done before the PSA, and it measures the size of the prostate gland. What I say is it should be done sooner, because if your prostate gland is large, uh, if, for example, a, a normal prostate gland in a man who's 65 is about 40 uh, milliliters, 40 cubic centimeters, cc's. And that would give off a PSA of about four or less. So it's about 10% of the size. But if you have a, pro if a man has a prostate gland of 80, then his PSA could be eight and be normal. But because they don't measure it and they see a PSA of eight, they think this is markedly elevated and they do a biopsy. Uh, Dr. Mark Scholes, an expert here in Los Angeles, says that of the 1.2 million biopsies done a year, half of them are completely unnecessary. So measuring the PS, the, the prostate, is very important as part of this diagnostic uh, method. Your own now, your, your own prostate was 75 cc's, which was yes. which would have which was large, but then you would expect a, a higher PSA, correct? Of about seven to eight, but yes. my PSA was fourteen. Yes. So that was significant, even beyond that mm -hmm. level. Right. Well, now, now, what the, the major thing that has changed here is the development of a new MRI. Most people know what an MRI is. It's a magnetic, um, magnetic resonance uh, indicator, and it looks at tissue in a very different way than x-rays. And you can really see things in great detail, and now there is such an MRI for the prostate gland. It's only available in maybe 6 to 12 places in the country, uh, but it's top-level places. It isn't, you know, questionable. In Mayo Clinic, Sloan Kettering Cancer Hospital in New York, UCLA, UCSF. So it's really beginning to gain ground as an important part of all this. And as this happens, and most urologists, most prostate surgeons have not jumped on this. They have not gotten into this. They just proceed the usual way it went for me. High, you know, high PSA, biopsy positive, uh, surgery, radiation. But the, the MRI, and this is what the support group steered me to, I got the MRI. I thought, well, what's to lose? Even if the major urology associations aren't supporting it. 
I mean, so if the test isn't any good, I, we won't use it. So I got, I got this test done, and it showed exactly what I had. It showed a solitary, uh, small-medium nodule in the left side, the left lobe of my prostate gland. And fortunately, it was just right in the middle of this middle area where there's no structures and no major tissues and not spreading from what we could see or anything else. And I went to my new doctor who was using these methods, and he said, you know, this will probably never bother you. Your cancer grade is low. Uh, it's called a Gleason 6. That's the yardstick. Yeah, he we're going to talk, we we'll talk about the Gleason in a minute. I, I'd like you to explain that to us, but please go on. By the way, let me just take a sidebar and say to the listeners, if you get Dr. Cohn's book, Prostate Cancer Breakthroughs, on page 39, he lists the various centers in the United States that have this new MRI technology. So you yes. can find it right there. Yes. And that's key. I mean, my whole point, purpose in writing this book, just like all the other books I've written, uh, is to just inform people. You know, my feeling is that the medical, major medical uh, system uh, is, you know, just a very entrenched institutional you know, establishment, and it's hard to get change. I mean, it's been well proven that it can take 10 to 20 years to get a new idea to actually get to doctors and have them actually using it in their offices. And I think that's terrible, especially when it comes to this kind of situation where so many men are unnecessarily harmed every year. And being one of them who almost went down that same road, I really want to get this book out into the hands of people as quickly as I could. You came very close to actually having uh, surgery, didn't you? I came very close. Well, that was great that you didn't, and you went on to write. So we're talking now about you got the MRI. You got were able MRI, to get that. You got the, okay, so what I had. Yes. And I thought, well, maybe I don't need surgery. And again, I, I met with this doctor in Los Angeles, Dr. Mark Scholes and his group, and they said yes, and then they performed a second test, which I wanted to have done, and this is called a color Doppler ultrasound. And this is a test where they use a basic ultrasound equipment. Ultrasound is sound waves that are bounced off and then read. And it measures excess blood flow, just like the MRI does, which you see with prostate cancer. Except this ultrasound is computerized and will show on the screen areas of increased blood flow and and he do, does it in his office as he's examining you and he puts the screen where both he and I could see it and he points to this area and he said well this is the same area where we saw uh, uh, a cancer on the MRI mm -hmm. so the color Doppler ultrasound confirmed what the MRI showed which made me feel a lot more comfortable since there's still question and still is about the MRI's reliability. So now I have two tests saying I have this one area, it's not spreading anywhere, it doesn't look like it's going to be encroaching on anything important, uh, and I thought, well, now I think I can relax a little bit finally and say, let's now do what we call active surveillance. Before we go on to active surveillance, let me say that the resources for this color Doppler ultrasound are also in Dr. Cohn's book, so you can find them there. This is important stuff for people to be able to have ready reference because you go through all the diagnostic procedures in your book, and then we're going to go on, of course, to the treatment procedures. Right, and these tests do now change, multiply the treatment choices, so one leads to another. Mm -hmm. 
So we're talking about, you're, you're now recommending that people get the DRE, of course, that's the standard procedure, get the PSA, but then rather than going right to biopsy, go to the MRI and to the color Doppler. Right. Now, one, the MRI alone may suffice. The MRI, I think, will gradually, over the next few years, become more and more accepted. You know, things are slow. One of the reasons things are slow is not only does there have to be studies saying the MRI is accurate and reliable, which there now are, there then have to be studies that are done and published, which is another several years that confirm this. And then after that, the... Uh, Government panels and the panels of the urology associations have to review all the information and then put their seal of approval on it, so it takes time. But my feeling was, look, <laughs> I have prostate cancer now, and I don't really want to have surgery, and I don't really want to have radiation. And here is this MRI, and it looks very reliable to me. We're doing it at a top institution. And here's this color Doppler ultrasound, which we're doing, and it seems quite reliable, and the methodology makes sense, and the, uh, and the science. And it's confirming what we've already seen. And I thought, well, you know, um, let's just follow it. That the whole point of active surveillance is you watch it, and you follow it with your PSA levels. You follow it with these two tests, and you see what happens, and you can still intervene if there's any sign of uh, spread. Now, if, if someone is following it uh, and they're, they're working with their doctor and they're doing uh, active surveillance, how often should they be getting a advanced MRI and a color Doppler in order to be keeping up with and be doing a good job at active surveillance? Uh, although it may varies a bit, vary a bit between doctors in general, for the first year, you do the PSA test every three months. And this PSA test, I just might want to add, which the, the government is now saying you don't need you know, between 50 and 70, and then you really don't need after your 70, I feel is absolutely necessary. This is our, this is our early warning sign. Since PSA was adopted in uh, 1990, you know, the, the number of deaths from prostate cancer dropped by 50%. And now they're saying, well, let's not do it because doctors don't know what they're doing, and they're doing too much, and they're doing too much surgery. But now with the MRIs and all, that should all change anyway. So I'm telling everybody I know, uh, get your PSAs. And I know when I'm over 70, I'm going to get my PSAs. And even if I didn't know I had prostate cancer or this hadn't happened, when I'm 75, I'm going to want to live till 90. And if I'll get my PSA test because I don't want to have cancer, they'll kill me in two or three years and not even know about it. So I think the whole decision-making on this is w wrong, and I really encourage everybody, every man, to get their PSA test annually. Dr. Cohn, the, the biopsy, which uh, people are referred to after the PSA, the biopsy is an invasive procedure which has side effects. The PSA test is a blood test. What are the, what are the downsides? Why is the government... Uh, arguing against the PSA. Why did they come out with a strong recommendation against a blood test which has no side effects? What, is there a downside to a blood test? <laughs> it's a great question. You know, the PSA is going through the same tortuous path suddenly uh, that the mammogram is. You know, prostate cancer in men is, the, you know, the second leader can't, leading 
cancer killer in men and breast cancer is the second leading killer in women. The statistics are pretty similar. And suddenly we're not doing mammograms and suddenly we're not doing PSAs. And the reason for both of those decisions is that doctors aren't handling the results right. And there's over-treatment and all these things. So they're saying, well, let's not do the tests, and then we don't have to worry about the doctors doing the wrong thing. Is that but what the reasoning is? I mean, I was looking and uh, researching for this uh, interview. I found all these references to the government's uh, taking this position against PSA and, and, and these, these little cryptic comments about their reasoning, and I couldn't find one piece of evidence as to what their reasoning actually was. And well, the reasoning is what, I've, what I see with a lot of medical stuff that I challenge. Uh, and it's that they look at this broad perspective, big numbers, how many people get surgeries they don't need, and, you know, and, and, and they are trying to reduce the amount of harm that's caused unnecessarily by the medical system. And I'm not anti-medical system. I'm for the medical system when it's done right just like I'm for alternative medicine when it's done right. And the thinking is very, very short-sighted. We need PSA. We need mammograms. And then we need doctors who know how to use these results properly. And I think that as we get an MRI and other new things that are just coming over the horizon that I talk about in the book, uh, I think a lot of that will be avoided now. And the PSA will still be an important step, the first step, the really only early warning system we have with prostate cancer. And if you catch it early and things are done properly, it's a very treatable condition and a very high percentage of men. So what you're recommending, if I understand you, is that people who have an elevated PSA, they, they need to educate themselves about this whole process or they've got to get somehow connected with a physician who is highly educated so that they don't go directly from an elevated PSA to a biopsy, that they do go through these diagnostic procedures that you're recommending, uh, be it the advanced and MRI, the, the, uh, the, the ultrasound, the, I mean, they could do that earlier, the Doppler test. And then you're also recommending that someone work with them to give them a Gleason score. So p explain that, please. Well, the Gleason score simply comes from when a biopsy is done. And if, it, uh, and if one of the biopsies, they usually take about 12 pieces of the prostate gland from different areas, and if one or more are found to have prostate cancer, Gleason is a scale that uh, identifies the degree of cancer. Is it a mild cancer, a non-aggressive-looking cancer, or is it, is it very uh, angry-looking, uh, highly aggressive cancer. Uh, a low-grade one is a 6. Uh, a high-grade one, aggressive-looking one, is a 10. And there's gradations in between. And that comes as part of the process. So then what you, then, you go on to say is that a person really needs to have their risk level assessed so that they know whether they're in low, intermediate, and, or high risk, which then has indications for their treatment. Yes, but let me mention this as part of, because we're talking about biopsy right now. Okay. There's a doctor at USC, Dr. Yukimura, who I talk about in the book, who is now using the MRI to, uh, as he's doing the biopsy, so if he sees areas of, of suspicion, he can target, 
He's doing a targeted biopsy that really goes for the areas where the right might really be cancer. And the great thing about that, that is that um, the accuracy of the biopsy, you know, you're not just doing it blind in the dark where you could actually miss a cancer. He's now going for the area where it is and it has a hot, much higher degree of accuracy. The doctors who do the color Doppler ultrasounds in their offices, as they're doing the color Doppler ultrasound, they can use it to do their biopsy and, again, guide their biopsy to the areas of suspicion. So this, again, will give us much more reliable results. We won't have to repeat the blind biopsies that are that don't get the cancer again and again and again just to be sure. And sometimes men might have an MRI done even before their biopsy to make sure there's even anything to biopsy. Yes. So these are the various diagnostic treatments. Now, after you've had those done, it's determined whether you're in the low risk, intermediate, or high risk, which then determines whether you go to actual treatment or whether you go to active surveillance, correct? Yes. Although active surveillance is a form of treatment. Now, before we go on to um, the the treatments, which I very much want to uh, cover with you in our time today, I have a a couple of uh, letters that were sent in uh, to to ask you questions about, and I'd like to read one of them here. This man says that I've read that inflammation of an organ can cause genetic mutations that can potentially lead to cancer. Should there be any concern with prostate cancer when spending hours on a bike saddle? Occasionally long rides cause an achy feeling uh, down below. That's a great question, and it hits the target perfectly, because in my first chapter where I talk about the PSA test, and I wrote it so people can prevent their doctors from uh, over-interpreting the PSA test. One of the things that can give you an elevated PSA test is if you're riding an exercise bike or a regular bicycle and you get that pressure way down in your, your perineal area and that pressure on the prostate can push out more PSA. So you take a PSA level, you know, that day or the next day, and it can be artificially high. And again, it can be misinterpreted. So bike riding, having sex a day or the night before your PSA test can lead to release of more PSA. And these things that are important for, for people to know, many doctors do not know this, uh, so that your doctor, if your test comes back over above normal, you will understand why that is, and, and you'll repeat the test, avoiding those activities uh, to make sure you have a more accurate subsequent test. Here's another one. Dr. Cohn, I've read that a a new study suggests that men with prostate cancer who take statins, uh, medication for lowering cholesterol, may have a lower risk of dying from uh, prostate cancer than those who do not. Have you heard anything about this study? Yeah, I I saw that also, and I kind of smiled because I've, you know, part of my work in terms of medications and side effects and drug companies is that a test, a, a report like that needs to be kept in perspective. Drug companies are always doing all kinds of studies to try to find any new market for themselves. Uh, I think it was like eight or ten years ago they were saying it might help prevent Alzheimer's, and now we found that it, it doesn't. Um, so I wouldn't be rushing to take statins for this reason. Uh, maybe it'll show to be true, but I'm skeptical, and I wouldn't move toward it until I see a lot more independent uh, study of this. 
Uh, here's another one. Uh, I take um, Avodart, and should I be discussing this with my doctor, and do, does, should he be adjusting my PSA or the results of my PSA to account for the fact that I take uh, Avodart? Well, if you're taking Abidart, I presume you have prostate cancer, and then that's a whole new league. I mean, uh, my book is mainly about, you know, PSA, should you get it, the tests you can do now, and the treatments that are available now. Abidart usually is a medication that is used for men with prostate cancer, and then PSA is used in a very different way. So I'm going to refrain from answering that question because it's really beyond my area of expertise. Is Avidart used for uh, the benign uh, prostatic hypertrophy it, it, or it only can, for it, cancer? Well, it can be used for benign prostatic hypertrophy, but uh, equally often it is used as one of the treatments for men with prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe this fellow was wondering whether if he's taking it for the uh, BPH, uh, but he doesn't have cancer, whether that's going to have an effect on his PSA. And it would definitely have a, an effect on his PSA. Okay, and hopefully his doctor is aware of that. Yeah, I assume if the doctor is prescribing it, he knows how that uh, would then change interpretation of PSA. Okay. So a person now has gone through these various diagnostic procedures, and now it's time to be thinking about what you had to be thinking about, which is, what do I do about treatment? So let's that's, talk about treatment. That's right. Uh, and now, again, since we're going to be able to actually see into the prostate, we now have many wider choices. We still have surgery and radiation, which when they are needed, they should be done. I am not against surgery. Surgery just, you know, is, it needs to be used when it is really needed. And the same is true of radiation. Uh, and there's several radiation types to choose from. There's uh, proton therapy that you get at Loma Linda University and some of the other uh, MD Anderson and other places now are adopting proton. Uh, Scripps down here is uh, building one right now. Uh, there's the what, usual, it, what, it, what, it, what is proton? Uh, well, proton is a different is a different particle that is uh, shot at the cancer. Uh, the usual is a uh, from the usual radiation machines is a. Uh, and I'm, 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 again, <laughs> I'm not even sure I'm really accurate on this. I think it's a neutron, or a, uh, but I'm not actually sure. The most common radiation used is the uh, IMRT, the guided radiation uh, that is used in most centers today, and now proton is becoming a competitor. Then the, and the results on proton, uh, there are not a lot of results in, so there's still a lot of question whether it's better or not. You will get many... Uh, people reporting they had proton and it was great uh, with few adverse effects but I still there's still a very big debate in the radiology world about these two methods there's a third method what you in say in your book, actually put excuse me what you say in your book is that the advantage of the proton beam is that it only releases its energy when it reaches its target whereas the uh, IMRT uh, evidently, it's releasing its energy as soon as you turn it on. Is that correct? The the uh, intensity modulation. The IMRT goes through tissue and does release release a little of that energy and can cause some damage that way. Although it's done much more uh, in a much more sophisticated way than it used to be, because they'll shoot the beam from 360 different angles, so the only tissue it's going through consistently is the prostate. Uh, 
the proton, the theory of it releasing its energies right where it should, is wonderful. The question is, does it actually work that way? Uh, and that's still a big question. And do men, so, do men still suffer the side effects of uh, incontinence or a loss of erectile uh, functioning w with these two radiation techniques? Yes. They do. Although to a much lesser degree than the surgery. That's a question that I've gotten quite a few emails about, by the way, and that is, I mean, we're still on treatment here. We'll come back to it, but the men, of course, are interested in what do we do if we, what do I do? The, the, the emails say, if I lose my erectile functioning, what kind of treatments are available for me then? Well, uh, again, um, there are experts in this. There are, there are oncologists, cancer specialists who specialize in the treatment of men who are post-treatment for cancer, uh, prostate cancer. And they can use, uh, you know, the Viagras and the other drugs that work that way, but there's a whole methodology to the treatment of these adverse effects in men. Yes. I know one of the things that men, if you're listening, you can look up is also is uh, Cabraject, uh, which is not as well known by any means as uh, as, as uh, Viagra and Cialis and uh, Levetra, of course. Well, let's get back to treatment. So the, the first one we're talking about here are these two, um, the proton beam radiation therapy and the IMRT. There's uh, a third, and that's called brachytherapy, in which they insert little radioactive seeds in the prostate gland itself. Uh, and some men really like that approach, and then others do not. Uh, you have to have a reasonably normal-sized prostate to have it. If your prostate is very large, sometimes they'll put you on drugs to shrink the prostate size before they do brachytherapy. There, are, the there are drugs that actually shrink the prostate? That's not snake oil? There's, there really are those? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. Okay. And, um, and, well, they block testosterone and things like that, and it does shrink the prostate, and then they can do the brachytherapy. Okay. Now, the, other, the yes. other treatments, and these are, of course, therapies we've had all along and that have been increasingly perfected as we go. But to me, uh, the real interesting ones are the ones that are now coming on board because think of it, if we now can localize your cancer and we can find it's in one area here or one area there, why irradiate the whole prostate gland in the areas around it or why, why take out the whole prostate gland in areas around it? Now, if you were to be diagnosed by your urologist today with prostate cancer, and if they found on biopsy it was in one area on one side, you'd say, well, why don't we just treat that side? And your, your doctor would almost always say, as I was told several times, if it's found here, it's also on, in other places. It isn't just on one side or in one place. So we've got to treat the whole prostate gland with the surgery or the radiation. But a study came out just about eight months ago in the New England Journal of Medicine done at the Cleveland Clinic, and they took, uh, I think it was about 600 men, and they did do the biopsies and all, and of those based on the biopsy findings and the glee, they, um, about 450 actually had surgery prostate surgeon and took out their glands. They had pathologists look at the prostate glands, and they found that a third of them really did have prostate cancer on the other side and all over and significantly severe prostate uh, cancer. So that was a good idea. But they found another third 
had some spread of, or different areas of prostate cancer, but they were very tiny, insignificant cancers. So really the only serious cancer was the one that had been identified. They really hadn't needed the prostate surgery. And, a thir- and another third had it just where they found it and nowhere else. So they didn't need the surgery either. So of those 430 men, only a third of them really needed the prostate uh, surgery. So when doctors say to you, well, you have it all over, probably let's just remove it, in most cases, that isn't the case. And this is another reason why it's so important to get an MRI as part of this workup. Given these various treatments that are available, I see why you're underscoring so much the importance of the diagnosis and, and getting the, uh, an accurate diagnosis of what you have. Absolutely. And then if you really do have it on one side, then there's new treatments. One is called high-intensity focused, uh, focused ultrasound, which can then create a beam of heat that is you know, above boiling, and it can burn out the cancer. And you can, uh, you can do the whole prostate, but the numbers with that are not as good uh, as with the surgery or the radiation, but you can do half the prostate. You can avoid the urethra, which is the tube where the urine comes down and goes to the penis. And you really want to avoid that if you can. You can avoid the nerves that kind of border the prostate gland. And more and more, it will probably be used just to do a focal. Let's just get out the cancer we see, and then we'll watch. There's another approach which is similar, except it uses a freezing technique. This is called cryosurgery or cryotherapy. And again, the numbers and results from the past 15 years for entire prostate removal are not as good, but it is now used, being used increasingly for half the prostate gland, the half with the cancer, or even just for a section of the prostate gland. And these methods will become more and more perfected as we go. Both the HIFU, the high-intensity focused ultrasound, and the cryotherapy. Yes, and there's a third that's now being used in a few places, which I talk about in the book that are that is now adapting laser therapy and it's done again it's these are all done not as office procedures they do require a surgical setting but they're outpatient procedures they may take a couple hours and men don't have to be in the hospital uh, over one or two nights after them the laser of course we know what lasers are and it's being used like a biopsy you know you go in you you, I, you use an MRI machine while you're doing this. You identify the area you need to treat, and you go in there with a probe, and you zap it with a laser. So these are all developing, and more, more and more methods are coming online now. Uh, I say that in 10 years, the whole approach, the diagnostic approach first and foremost, and then the treatment approach of prostate cancer will be completely different than it is today which is great because, because the statistic I always get stuck on is one in six men ultimately will develop prostate cancer. So I think it's really key that this revolution that is occurring, this changing, just happen as quickly as we can get it to happen because so many men are involved. I want to come back to something you said at the beginning of the interview, which is how much you learned from the support group that you actually did not learn from your own colleagues or your own practitioner? Uh, they, were, they were integral. I mean, if I hadn't just fortunately ended up with this group, in this group, I would have just followed the usual process. 
I wouldn't have even known. I have another letter here. A man says, if I get a, I, I had an elevated PSA, and should I get more PSAs in order to confirm my doctor wants to go right ahead with a biopsy? Well, you should at least have another PSA to confirm for sure, and you should avoid the things that might be elevating your PSA, like we talked about, the uh, bike riding or anything else that puts pressure on your prostate. If you have a you know, have an easy chair at home you lay back in, but you can feel it's really putting pressure on that area of your body. You could should avoid that for a couple of days. You should avoid sex for a couple of days. You should ask him, well, how do you know I just don't have a prostate infection? Uh, and questions like those. Yeah, one of the questions how, here is... How big is, is my prostate? Do you have an actual measurement of it? Uh, one uh, listener wants to know, how many days prior to my PSA should I uh, abstain from sexual relations or ejaculation? 48 hours. At least 48 hours. Yes. How long has it been uh, that you've been on uh, active surveillance? It's been, it's been a year and a third. And what do you do and how often do you do it to be in this active surveillance program? Well, for the first year, you follow your, you, know, you repeat your PSA every three months, and then you, and again, diff, different doctors have a different uh, protocol. But we repeated the color Doppler ultrasound, and then I had a uh, another MRI at UCLA a few months back, and everything seems to be quite stable. Oh, it's wonderful to hear, and aren't you thrilled that you didn't go ahead with the other procedures? I'm very thrilled. We're coming to the end of our interview. What more would you like to offer to our listeners that we didn't cover? And I'm going to be looking at what other letters are here as you're saying that. Well, we covered pretty much all of it. <laughs> we did it. We did it. We covered it pretty broadly. But the important thing, you know, as most of your listeners know because of the type of show this is, you have to be educated. You have to educate yourself. You have to, you know... Doctors, and I'm one of them, you know, sometimes my patients come in with things I haven't seen before, you know, in my area, and I'm delighted to see it. Some doctors that won't touch anything from the Internet, won't touch anything. I have doctors that won't even read a package insert written by a drug company and approved by the FDA if they don't want to hear that this drug could cause this side effect. But you really have to inform yourself. Even the best doctors can't keep up with everything. Yes. So this is the area in particular where men really need to, to, to keep current because a lot of their doctors aren't. Here's one more letter for you. This will be our last. Uh, Dr. Cohn, I have a high PSA and in a quandrum about what to do. Three of my brothers and my father all had prostate cancer. They had radical surgery. Two have died and one brother is dying. Uh, I'm, I'm now looking for your book. I had a biopsy about three years ago with negative results. What do you recommend I do, and do you do consults by phone? I do consults by phone. Usually it's in other areas where I'm published and have worked. You probably wouldn't get much more out of me than you'll get by reading the book or by this interview, but I would definitely encourage you to get the book right away. And then you need to find a urologist, uh, or an oncologist who specializes in prostate cancer and discuss all these could go be seen right away, uh, get the PSA checked again and discuss 
all these issues with a doctor, find the right doctor and get on it because with your family history, you're high risk. So you really want to find out where you are right now in, uh, in this situation. Now, you may not have prostate cancer. You may never have prostate cancer, but the risk factor uh, is high for you. So you need to get on with it and find a doctor who can talk this language with you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Cohn, and thank you for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. My uh, pleasure. Thank uh, you for having me. You're very welcome, and I look forward to reading the other book you're going to send me, and we'll get you back on the program and do an interview on that one as well. Please remind me of the name of that book. Overdose. Overdose. Subtitle, The Case Against the Drug Companies. Thank you very much. Dr. Cohn's book, this is Dr. J.S. Cohn, M.D., Prostate Cancer Breakthroughs. New Tests, New Treatments, Better Options, a Step-by-Step Guide to Cutting-Edge diagnostic, diagnostic Tests and Eight Medically Proven Treatments. If you're anywhere near this issue, you're going to want to buy this book. Sure, let's take the call, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Um, hi, uh, Dorothea Dorman calling. Uh, you know, I, I think people don't really know that there are other options uh, for testing the dark field microscope. And I, I had friends, a friend uh, who was doing dark field microscopy, and they were all, they have a group, and they're all getting hassled by the government. Uh, and the reason is, I think, because it would, uh, the testing industry would lose a great deal of money. The it, you know, 400X magnification, and you can see, Cancer viruses in the blood, um, because cancer is systemic, and you can see even see the precancerous cells. You can identify them. Give us the name um, of that microscope again, please. Dark field. Dark, dark field, field microscope. Thank you very right. much. That's something we'll and, be looking into. Was this... And then the other thing is, instead of mammograms, I wouldn't. You couldn't pay me to have a mammogram because. Squishing the breast can spread the cancer. Again, sca- uh, cancer is systemic. Um, but the far, the infrared testing is just amazing uh, because, and again, it's non-toxic. It doesn't have bad side effects. You can see uh, the inflamed areas of the body. Thank uh, you. And so that's being used for cancer. And then for treatment, I would go with the rice machine. Uh, electronically zapping the microbes, and that's been around for about close to 100 years. It's now it's so finely developed, and again, it's sort of in the it's in the underground economy. And other things work for cancers, um, treating cancer systemically. Oh, okay, can I respond? Yes, yes, please, uh, Dorothy. Let Dr. Cohn respond, please. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, first of all, Michael, I just want to mention. The book is available only online. You can go to Amazon and find it right away. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Not of all, it is not yet available in bookstores. As far as Dorothy is concerned, I've been involved uh, in part of my work, but not all of it, with alternative medicine since I was with the first group at UCLA. We studied acupuncture in 1973. And I'm familiar with dark field microscopy, etc. Personally, I would not be comfortable with that. Now, I think every person who has any kind of problem should explore any of these possibilities. I'm not against them. Personally, having cancer, I don't know enough about, 
and I don't know that they're proven enough to my satisfaction that I would pursue them. But like Dorothy is saying, I mean, every person has a right and, and really should consider the possibilities and explore them. Thank you. Okay, that's our interview for the day. As I promised in the early part of the program, we're going to leave time now for news and notes in psychology and medicine. Uh, to begin with, I have a letter here um, from Petra Schulte, a nutrition educator at the uh, Fort Bragg Unified School District, and she is saying, here are some reasons why it's good to eat broccoli. Broccoli. Do you know that green fruits and vegetables help maintain vision health and strong bones and teeth? Well, maybe so. She's recommending broccoli, and she's saying they're a source of potassium, folate, iron, soluble fiber, which aid in everything from vision and growth to circulation and digestion, and may, and may even prevent the formulation of cancer-causing carcinogens. <clears throat> Can't be sure whether they do or not, but certainly nobody ever got in trouble eating broccoli, so go for it, folks. Uh, here's another warning on tanning. A bronzed or tanned skin is uh, many a fashionista's first choice. However, the American Academy of Dermatology says there's a 75% increase in the risk of melanoma, the deadliest type of skin cancer in those who have been exposed to ultraviolet radiation from indoor tanning, and the risk increases with each use. So again, the FDA and the American Academy of Dermatology they are warning strongly about tanning, these tanning beds. Um, children who spend two to three or more hours a day watching television are more likely to display traits of antisocial behavior such as fighting, stealing, and acting out, according to a study published in the Archives of Disease in Childhood. These researchers, by the way, studied 11,000 kids who were born between 2000 and 2002. Interesting. I mean, many of us have been concerned about television and the effects of television. Now we've got more studies coming out on it. Something for people who have children to be advised about. On the other side of the coin, there's evidence now from the University of, uh, of McGill University, rather, in Montreal, who studied 26,000 Canadian teens between the ages of 11 and 15, and they found that just sitting down for a family meal decreases risky behavior for teens and helps performance in school. So here we have, on the one hand, television two to three hours a day. That's a lot of television, two to three hours a day increases fighting, stealing, and antisocial behavior, and sitting down for a family meal leads to a decrease in risky behavior and helps their school performance. So what do we say? Eat family meals more, watch television less, and you'll be doing your kids a favor. Here's a big, big, big warning about chickens once again. I mean, you've seen the movies on chickens and how they're raised and so on and so on. This study by the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, IATP, went out and sampled 90 samples of chicken from fast food products, and they all contained too much arsenic. Too much arsenic. What to do about it? 
they're suggesting either buy organic chickens because these birds cannot legally be given arsenic, or they're actually saying buy kosher chickens, buy free-range chickens, or talk to your butcher or the person who you're buying the chickens from and actually ask them if the birds are given arsenic. Sounds like a worthwhile thing to ask or to just buy organic chicken if you can possibly afford it, but this is certainly the fast food. To, uh, I'm not going to go into that one. Do we have a caller there? Or they, uh, sure, put them online. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Yes, hi. This is Johanna. I'd like to go back to a, a, a remark you made earlier about eating broccoli and how nobody's ever been harmed by eating too much broccoli. Um, I would like to offer um, the information that raw broccoli, as as all brassicas, such as cabbage, etc., all the vegetables in the brassica family, raw contain a substance that suppresses thyroid function. And therefore, you know, if you if you are on the low thyroid side already, eating a lot of raw broccoli because you think it's so good for you, or eating a lot of raw cabbage that's not been fermented or cooked. Um, can actually depress your thyroid function and can, can, can lead to, it can impact thyroid function. The same thing goes for, for unfermented soy products such as tofu and soy milk. So, um, you know, it, it, uh, I would advise being careful with statements about how, you know, too much broccoli has never harmed anybody. I think, I think we need to offer the complete uh, picture here and, and not just some limited take on it. Um, cooking, by the way, uh, in brassica deactivates that substance. Um, and you don't have to cook, you know, don't have to cook it to death, but a quick steaming or a quick stir fry deactivates those substance. But it's definitely there in raw broccoli, and I'm sure if you research this, you'll find this. Well, thank you so much. I, I said corrected, and I certainly wasn't uh, referring to eating the broccoli raw when I made that statement. And, right. uh, and I appreciate yeah. your calling in and, and clarifying that. That's important. I, we wouldn't want a lot of people out there just chomping away at raw broccoli based on, on what I said. So thank you. Let's see what else we have here in um, news and notes. Oh, here's a letter. I don't know if we're going to have time for this. It's a letter from a listener wanting to know uh, what to do about what's called a bad trip, uh, taking uh, recreational uh, drugs or medicines and, uh, and experiencing what's called a bad trip. I don't think I'm going to really have time to get into that thoroughly today, uh, but I will make a couple of comments on it. Uh, re most typically, when a person has what's called a bad trip, uh, they're experiencing internal uh, disorder, uh, which we often refer to as anxiety. It's a terrible feeling inside that um, we experience as uh, imminent doom. You know, something really terrible is going to happen. It's important to keep in mind that if you're in a safe environment, if you're in your home, you're on a beach, you're out in the woods, and this occurs, particularly if you're in your own home, you're, you're actually safe from external influence. And what's going on is you're internally feeling unsafe, which is leading to the anxiety. Therefore, the way to approach this, quote, bad trip is by going inside. And what to do when you go inside is going to have to be uh, for the next program because I'm getting uh, signals that we are running out of time. So 
Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLaura. Please join me again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time when my guest will be Bill McMillan. We're going to be talking about his latest film, Welcome Home. It's about a group of returning vets with PTSD, and we're going to follow them through a week of a therapy program. It's, it's a great film. It's going to be showing at the Mendocino Film Festival in June. Until uh, two weeks from now, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.